Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our hope is that as we discuss the scriptures, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Welcome back to Latter-day Peace Studies Presents Come Follow Me. I am your co-host, Christopher Hurtado. With me is my co-host, Ben Peterson. Hi, Christopher. Good to have you with me, Ben, on this lovely evening where we have just found ourselves in quite the pickle. We have decided, you know, at the beginning of this year that we would read the text. We decided also that we would put all these texts that we're reading into some kind of order where we can see gospel parallels. We have a document for that. If you'd like to follow along, send us your email address, reach out, and we'll add you to our mailing list. If that's okay with you, just send us your email address, let us know, and we'll share the document and add you to our mailing list. We don't have anything to mail you yet, but we may someday. We'll let you know we have an event coming up. I think we're planning and we have all the events in Jesus' life lined up in some kind of chronology. Is it the chronology? I don't know. I just know this way we can see all the versions of the things that happen in Jesus' life lined up in parallel. Mm-hmm. And so that's how we've been kind of working our way through this. And so what's happening, because the church's curriculum is dealing with this, not at the level of those pericopes, not at the level of the events or stories in Jesus' life, but at the level of chapters, things get repetitive sometimes. And so in the interest of keeping this to a reasonable length, we're not going to read stuff that we've read in other chapters. We may compare, or we may not, we may suggest that you compare. Using this document that we're sharing will make it easy because you'll be able to see these things side by side. We're starting today with Matthew 8, 1 through 4, the cleansing of the leper. And what I'll do is I'll go through and I'll read you what are the stories that we're skipping as we go through this, you know, looking through this document in order, where all the events are in order, in an order at least. And then anything that we've already covered in another chapter, we'll mention that, we'll probably pass over it without reading it. And that's how we'll proceed. Does that make sense, Ben? Yeah, that works for me. Hopefully the, the listener can follow. And again, if you, if you would like to follow along by, by reading the document, or at least look at it when you're not driving your car and listening to the podcast, let us know. We'll be happy to share it. So here we go with the cleansing of the leper, Matthew 8, 1 through 4. When he was come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. This is after the Sermon on the Mount. And behold, there came a leper and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. And Jesus put forth his hand and touched him, saying, I will, be thou clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said unto him, See thou tell no man, but go thy way, show thyself to the priests, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. So here you're healed, go make your sacrifice at the temple according to the Mosaic law. Don't tell anybody. That's the part that gets me. Because, okay, if he were always doing that, it would make sense, Ben, but he's not always doing that. He's he's sometimes letting it be known far and wide. Yeah. Right? So that's the curious thing about it. I wonder... My sheikh brought up the possibility that there was a secret teaching given to him and that that's being referenced. We do see clearly 
in the chapters on the Sermon on the Mount and the chapters from last week's reading too, that Jesus is teaching his disciples in private things that he's not teaching others in public. Maybe he's giving some parables in public, but then he goes in private with his disciples and teaches them the meaning of the parables, leaving it open for everyone else to figure it out for themselves. The next part is the healing of the paralytic from Mark 2. So our reading this week includes, what, Matthew 8, Mark 2 through 4, and Luke 7. Yeah, that's correct. You know what? There's several things here that stand out to me, Christopher, about this. You know, you brought up the you don't tell anybody type of thing. There seems to be an implication here that Jesus is concerned about the response of people to his mission, to who he's declaring himself to be. I know that some commentators at least have said, oh, this is a nod to Jesus's proclamation as Messiah or as a king, you know, a successor. And so he doesn't want this idea to get out too soon before he's ready to, you know, make his move, right? And I think that that makes it more political than I see otherwise in the Gospels. And I don't think this is a political statement. He's thinking about the community that's around and and their response to it and what's going to be the best way for that to be made known or, or come about for the individual themselves. And one thing we have seen for sure is that when he hears that people are coming to be healed or whatever, he takes off, which at first caught me by surprise. <laughs> people are coming. Okay, I'm out of here. And he goes <laughs> and he goes out to the wilderness to be alone with God, right? To spend time with God to tank up. And he comes back with that power that he gets from that experience and he heals with it. Yeah. So the other thing, Christopher, in verse two, we get this statement, this appeal from the leper, make me clean. And you kind of brought this up previously, but this isn't just an appeal for a physical healing. It seems to be an appeal to be reconciled to the community, right? Because his illness, his leprosy isn't just about his own physical pain or malady. It's also about the fact that he's ostracized from the community. And so again, this appeal to be made clean isn't just a physical healing, but also a way of being reunited with the community. Then when Jesus comes and he commands him to be clean, right? This has always kind of made me think, sort of pause and think about what is going on with this aspect of commanding someone. He says, be thou clean. Or in the NRSV, he says, be made clean. This is an aspect of healing in the Christian and especially Latter-day Saint tradition that is interesting to me. It, the implication is that people have the power to be healed on their own, but they need the assurance and direction provided by trusting another person or something that looks like authority, right? Something that commands you to do something and then they do it. They are made clean. So if we think of this in social or psychological terms, a person may indeed have the implicit ability to heal themselves, but what is often needed is a guide. I love that. Like a person to talk to, a person to rely on, or a person to share the experience with so that it can be processed and integrated into the whole. So Jesus seems to be performing this function for others, and this might be 
a significant part of what the atonement means. You know, this is why we talk about faith in Christ, because this kind of healing where a person needs assurance and direction has to come from someone that they trust. I love it. And, you know, pre-show, I was sharing with you a poem by the Mexican shaman Maria Sabina. I translated, same idea, physician heal thyself, right? Vahard had said. Okay, so the next story is the healing of the paralytic from Mark 2, 1 through 12. And again, he entered into Capernaum after some days, and it was noise that he was in the house. And straightway, many were gathered together in so much that there was no room to receive them. No, not so much as about the door. And he preached the word unto them. And they come unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born of four. And when they could not come nigh unto him for the press, they uncovered the roof where he was. And when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. Now, this is a roof that's made from straw covered with mud. They had to dig through the mud and pull away the straw to get through the roof. When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why doth this man speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? And immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, he said unto them, Why reason ye these things in your hearts? Whether it is easier to say to the sick of the palsy, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and take up thy bed and walk. You know, going back to verse 8, where we read that he perceived their thoughts. I remember in an earlier episode suggesting that he's sort of reasoning through what they would be thinking and and not necessarily reading their thoughts, right? Mm-hmm. But I read a story about Ram Das, formerly Richard Alpert, with Timothy Leary experimenting with psychedelics at Harvard, got himself fired, realized that he had entered into some kind of higher state of consciousness through psychedelics but that he always came down and he wanted to stay high, but but not high, right? He just wanted to be in that altered state of experience of a higher level of consciousness. And he went searching in India, he went seeking, and he found a guide, right? You mentioned a guide. He found a guru, and that guru could actually perceive his thoughts, actually told him what he had done the night before that he hadn't told anyone he had done and no one had seen him do it. So apparently that's possible. But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise, and take up thy bed, and go thy way into thine house. And immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed, and glorified God, saying, We never saw it on this fashion. The next pericope is on the call of Levi according to Matthew, and this is in Mark two thirteen through 17. And he went forth again by the seaside, and all the multitude resorted unto him, and he taught them, and he passed by. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the receipt of custom, and said unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. And it came to pass that as Jesus sat at meat in his house, many publicans and sinners sat also together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many and they followed him. Here we're talking about many disciples. I don't think we're talking about the 12. And then, of course, sinners are those who are in error, right? Again, sinners is just this theologically loaded term. We're talking about people who are in error, same word as in Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics for people who are in error. 
And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eat with publicans and sinners, they said unto his disciples, How is it that he eateth and drinketh with publicans and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he saith unto them, They that are whole have no need of the physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So I'm not coming to call those who are just, but those who are in error for lack of justice to change their minds, right? To turn toward God and his program of social justice, right? So Christopher, in this story, we have Levi named, and this brings up the question of Matthew, right? So Matthew might've been another name, possibly one that Jesus gave Levi or, or the author of the gospel of Matthew may have inserted his own name in place of Levi's as a sort of signature of his work. Some commentators, some scholars have have thought that. So again, you know, Levi is sometimes called Matthew, and it's not clear whether that is actually one of Levi's names or whether this was simply done by the author of the Gospel of Matthew as a way of signing his work, so to speak. This part here, Christopher, in verse 17, where it says, call not the righteous, but sinners, at least that's out of my, my NRSV, to repentance, right? It's like saying, I'm calling those who will hear. If someone believes himself to be righteous, he will not hear my call. It's almost like a tongue-in-cheek kind of thing, right? Like these people that are criticizing Jesus for teaching the quote-unquote sinners, right? He's saying, oh, well, I'm worried about the sinners, not the righteous, as if the people that are criticizing him are quote-unquote righteous. Or maybe they are righteous because they're doing all the outward things, right? But inward, Jesus calls them ravening wolves. So the next story is on plucking grain on the Sabbath from Mark 2, 23 through 28. And it came to pass that he went through the cornfields on the Sabbath day, and his disciples began as they went to pick the ears of corn. Now, we've covered this before, but corn is something from the new world, not the old world. Corn just means grain. I remember reading through the classics with my kids as a homeschool dad and so much corn. I thought, man, these people had a lot of corn. They ate a lot of <laughs> corn. It's just all about corn. It turns out it just means grain. And there is actually no corn whatsoever. It's just the word that was used in English to translate that word grain. But yeah. then now, because corn is so a specific thing, it's not a good word to use to translate that anymore. Exactly. So this is something that, you know, is allowed to do even on the Sabbath. You're not harvesting, you're just taking with your hands what you need to eat from hand to mouth. And the Pharisees said unto him, Behold, why do they on the Sabbath day that which is not lawful? And he said unto them, Have ye never read what David did when he had need and was hungered, he and they that were with him? How he went into the house of God, this is the temple we're talking about, in the days of Abiathar, the high priest, and did eat the showbread, which is not lawful to eat, but for the priests, and gave also to them which were with him. Not only for the priests, right, but only on a certain day. But David was hungry, and so were those with him. And he said unto them, The Sabbath was made for men, and not men for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. Again, he shows up here as a, as a son of mankind, of humanity, right? A human being, fully human. The next story is also in Mark, chapter 3 now, 1 through 6, the man with the withered hand. And he entered again into the synagogue, and there was a man there which had a withered hand. And they watched him, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath day, that they might accuse him. 
they're taking the role of the Satan, Hasatan, right? Of, of being an accuser, looking around for something, finding some fault mm-hmm. and, and, mm-hmm. and accusing, right? That's, that's the Satan role. And he said unto the man which had the withered hand, stand forth. And he said unto them, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath days or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they held their peace. See, they know that it is lawful to save life on the Sabbath. And when he had looked round about on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, he said unto the man, Stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored whole as the other. And the Pharisees went forth and straightway took counsel with the Herodians against him, how they might destroy him. So we see here at the beginning of his ministry, I mean, we're not that far into it, right? It's all, it only lasts a year, according to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. According to John, three to four years. But if we go with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he's already getting himself into trouble with the powers that be, right? Because these guys are going to let the powers that be know that he's a troublemaker. Next, we find Jesus healing the multitudes by the sea, Mark 3, 7 through 12. But Jesus withdrew himself with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him and from Judea and from Jerusalem, and from Idumea, and from beyond Jordan. And they about Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude, when they had heard what great things he did, came unto him. Now, Ben, I don't know about you, but I'm not so sure that all of these people from all of these places from so far away came. I think, you know, we could take this symbolically to mean this is where the message is going to end up. This is being written 20 to 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. And by this time, the message is starting to spread in this way. So it could just be that. There could also be something rhetorical going on here in terms of, like, you mention all these lands to say, hey, his message is inclusive, right? Right. This is including Gentiles and people that wouldn't normally be included within the social circle of quote-unquote, God's chosen people. Oh, yeah. Idumea stands out here. Yeah, well, yeah, that's the... Idumea is Edom, right? These are the Edomites. These are enemies of, of Israel. You know, we talked about this in, in the Old Testament discussions, right? So the, these people are persona non grata. <laughs> Absolutely. Verse 9, and he spake to his disciples that a small ship should wait on him because of the multitude, lest they should throng him. Now, this is funny if you just pause there. Okay, get a getaway vehicle ready for me, right? But that's not really what's happening. For he had healed many, insomuch that they pressed upon him for to touch him as many as had plagues. Well, okay, so yes and no, right? He's actually going to use it to speak to them. And unclean spirits, when they saw him, fell down before him and cried, saying, Thou art the Son of God. So here, rhetorically, right, the unclean spirits know who he is. They call him the Son of God. Maybe nobody else knows, but they know. And he straightly charged them that they should not make him known. Isn't that interesting? It is. You know, this goes along with our discussion earlier. But one of the other things that could be happening here is remember that knowing the name of a deity gives you power over that deity. And so part of him forbidding them to speak is also showing that he has power over the demons and they don't have power over him, you know, by knowing his name or speaking who he is. Yeah, it's a good point. The next part is on the choosing of the twelve. So now we have Mark three thirteen through 19. And he goeth up into a mountain and calleth unto him whom he would. And they came unto him. So we see Jesus going back and forth between being with the multitude and then going off with his disciples 
if you pay attention, you'll see that he's going back and forth between being with the multitude and then separating himself and his disciples from the multitude and, again, teaching them privately. Now, this is sort of alluding to Moses, and then there's some Elijah allusions here as well. So he's ascending up the mountain like Moses and Elijah, but there's something different happening here that is interesting. He's bringing other people with him. They didn't do that, right? And, and so he's bringing the apostles up there on the mountain with him. So the 12 apostles are symbolic of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so symbolically also representing the reconstituting of Israel into God's kingdom, right? This is the coming of the, the kingdom of God. So if the 12 tribes are meant to be a standard to all nations— this was sort of the charge in, in the Old Testament of what the Israelites were supposed to be. So then we have the 12 apostles. They are the beginning of a new order that's going to encompass all nations. And that's why in this whole discussion, we have him previous to this, we have him preaching to all these different types of people from all different nations. And so this seems to be this sort of inclusive message that's starting to get pushed out. Yeah, as I recall, Ben, nobody wanted to go up to see God with Moses, right? Right. Yeah, I guess they kind of were invited and they didn't want to. No, 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 you go up. That's the difference. Yeah. Verse 14, and he ordained 12 that they should be with him and that he might send them forth to preach and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out devils. And Simon, he surnamed Peter, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, and he surnamed them Boanerges, which is the sons of thunder. And Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus and Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, which also betrayed him, and they went into an house. Now, this list differs from other lists of the Twelve and the other Gospels. That's something to compare, right? You can compare with Matthew 10, 1 through 4, Luke 6, 12 through 16. And there's nothing about it in John. Well, one of the things strange here, Christopher, is that he just in the previous chapter mentioned that Levi was going to follow him. But then Levi is not mentioned in this list. That is curious. I mean, now we have a Matthew. We have a Matthew. And then we have a James, son of Alphaeus. Well, it, Levi was the son of Alphaeus. So what is going on here? Who is who? It's not as straightforward as... I used to think. <laughs> right, me too. The Bible has humbled me as a reader. I thought I was a good reader. And now that I'm studying it closely, I find that I have a lot of growing to do as a reader. I, I ask people, this is one of my favorite questions to ask to see who's reading closely. Who are the 12 disciples? There are obvious common names, but having a definitive list of 12 is not as, as simple as it seems to have been made out to be. <laughs> It's really not, yeah. The next story is about the Beatitudes, which doesn't show up in Mark, and it's not actually in this week's reading. We did cover it in Matthew 5 previously, the salt of the earth, the light of the world we will cover this week. That's from Mark 4, verse 21. And he said unto them, Is a candle brought to be put under a bushel or under a bed, and not to be set on a candlestick? Now, it, it is true that People did hide the light of a candle when going about at night. So they would share, you could light, somebody else could light their candle from your candle or your lamp or their lamp from your lamp, right? And they would go from place to place doing this. But sometimes you would hide the light 
as you would go about it at night so as to avoid any malefactors who might be lurking in the dark, right? But in the end, of course, the purpose of the light is for it to shine. So the next pericope is on judging, and it's from Mark 4, 24-25. And he said unto them, Take heed what ye hear. With what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you, and unto you that hear shall more be given. For he that hath, to him shall be given, and he that hath not, from him shall be taken away, even that which he hath. And that's a familiar proverb, let's say, from antiquity. There are other statements similar to that. I like what's done by the King James translators in verse 24. They capture the consonants of the the original Greek. I'm reminded, Christopher, that in the Book of Mormon, we have sort of Nephi's version of this, and he's talking about in terms of what a person is willing to receive scripturally. He says, you know, to those who are willing to receive more will be given more, and those who say we have enough will be taken away that which they have. So it's sort of like a a modified version of this concept that is used by Nephi to express, you know, receptiveness to new scripture or new revelation. So the next story is about the centurion of Capernaum that's found both in Matthew 8, 5 through 13 in this week's reading, and also in Luke 7, 1 through 10 in this week's reading. But to finish telling that story, we need to pick up from chapter 13, verses 28 through 29 of Luke. It also appears in John, and Mark, but not in this week's reading. And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him, and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus saith unto him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me, And I say to this man, go, and he goeth, and to another, come, and he cometh, and to my servant, do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and west, and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said unto the centurion, Go thy way, and as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. And his servant was healed in the selfsame hour. So I have some questions about this story, Christopher. <laughs> I have answers. They, they may even be true and correct answers. You never know. I kind of wonder, and I have some ideas, but I kind of wonder, why does this centurion bring up his, his authority, his exercising of authority, it seems what he's saying is that that makes him unworthy to have Jesus come in his house. Like originally I would think, oh, well, the unworthy part is the fact that he's a Gentile and a Jew shouldn't go into the house of a Gentile. But why is he mentioning his authority? And I say to this man, go here and this man go there. What does that have to do with anything? That's simply his way of saying, I get how this works. I have people under me. I can just say to somebody to do something and it's done. I don't have to be there. So you don't have to come to my place. Oh, that's good. And you're right, Ben. He's a Gentile, so Jesus can't come to his place. Yeah. And yet, this is one of these people that is called God-fearers, right? So he's someone who's not a Jew. He's a Gentile. 
but he sort of follows Jesus and and believes in him. Some of these God-fearers even built synagogues. So yeah, he's saying, you can heal him without coming to my place where I'm not worthy for you to come to my place. I don't think Jesus would think that. But if the man wants Jesus to heal him from a distance, he'll do it. And this kind of thing happens. I mentioned that there are people going around healing people at this time, and that one of them that comes down to us, you know, his story comes down to us and he's named, does the same thing. He heals someone from a distance. Yeah, that makes more sense. As far as like, he's saying to Jesus, I know how this works. You could just say it because I I just send people to do, you know, my errands and so forth. The The King James has this word servant, which at least in our modern vernacular is maybe a softening or a step above what the word might have actually been, which is actually probably slave. Oh, yeah. And so we have this translated servant. In the NRSV, it's translated as slave. It is a slave. What's interesting to me is that, like, to the modern reader, it's probably pretty surprising that a Gentile slave owner is considered by Jesus to have greater faith than the Israelites oh, yeah. that, that are around him. So here's here's kind of the scandalous question, right? Does owning slaves tarnish one's faith in Christ? That's a provocative question, Ben. What brings this up? Well, I just thought it was interesting that in this story, again, in KJV, we have this word servant. So I think it's easy for us to be like, oh, it's just somebody that works for him, an employee, right? You know, no big deal. But like, it's an actual slave. And here we have Jesus saying, this man has great faith. And that might be difficult for people to accept that Jesus is calling this person somebody who has great faith. And in our terms, like to a modern reader, that might be difficult to accept. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Because they're a slave owner, right? Like a slave owner is the worst of the worst. This is happening in a certain context, right? We can't divorce what's happening here from its context, and which isn't to say that it would be right to have slaves any more then than it would be now, or any more than it was when we had chattel slavery in America, where we're podcasting from. So, But it isn't chattel slavery, right? The, the way you become a slave in this time and place, as I'm sure you know, Ben, is by war, right? It's through war. If you lose the war, you become a slave. And you can get out of this too, by the way. You're not a slave for the rest of your life. Now, you're still a slave. You still have people, you know, who are losing their autonomy, their dignity, right? But that's how it was. That's when you when you lost the war, right? Does that satisfy the question for you, Ben? Again, it's not I'm not saying it's right to have slaves then or now. I am distinguishing between this kind of slavery and chattel slavery. And this isn't racist. You can say it's nationalistic. We don't seem to have a problem with nationalism. You and I do, but you know, most people and Christians today don't seem to have a problem with nationalism. I would say that both versions of slavery are wrong, and I would say that nationalism has its problems, and that this form of slavery was one of them. And if we don't, if we don't have that problem, we still have other problems associated with it. It's the otherizing at the very foundation of it all. That's the main problem. I think that. This is one of those verses that back in the day was used by the slave-owning apologist to say, see, Jesus thought it was okay. Oh, I see. And so this is something that needs to be renegotiated, at least as far as that goes, and, and has been renegotiated, I should say, has already been renegotiated. But 
when we look at what it's really saying, which I think the KJV obscures by using the word servant within our modern context, that when we you know, look at what it's actually saying, you know, it's a, it's a little more scandalous. The next story comes from Luke 7, 11 through 17, the widow's son at Nain. This story appears in no other gospel. And it came to pass the day after that he went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him, and much people. Now when he came nigh to the gate of the city, behold, there was a dead man carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and much people of the city was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and said unto her, Weep not. And he came and touched the bier, and they that bare him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say unto thee, Arise. And he that was dead set up and began to speak, and he delivered him to his mother. And there came a fear on all of them, and they glorified God, saying, What a great prophet is risen up among us, and that God hath visited his people. And this rumor of him went forth throughout all Judea and throughout all the region round about. Well, yeah, he just raised somebody from the dead. That's going to get around. <laughs> yeah. So what's interesting about this story that may escape the lay reader, right, is this son was her only means of sustenance, right? Right. So it's not, I'm sure she's sad that her son died because he's her son, but that's not it. There's more to this story than that. And this is why Jesus has compassion. He realizes that this woman is going to be left bereft without her son. She's destitute. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so he raises him from the dead. Can this be done? I don't know. This is what the text tells us. You know, Khalil Gibran wrote something about this. He's a poet, you know, a Maronite Christian, Lebanese-American poet. I think we can call him Lebanese-American. He did emigrate here and got called Khalil instead of Khalil by somebody mistransliterating his name. And he wrote about this saying, I'm paraphrasing, saying he didn't know if this could be true, if this could be done, if someone could be raised from the dead, but that you would only say this of someone who had done incredible things. Whether or not he did this thing, he must have done some incredible things for someone to write something like this at all. It's at least rhetorical. <laughs> at least, yeah. And it's a great mercy that he's done for this woman, this widow. This is an allusion to Elijah as well, you know, the widow that has a son and Elijah raises him from the dead. So often Jesus is compared to Moses and Elijah in the Gospels here. But yeah, the showing compassion because the woman is left with nothing. She lost her husband and then she lost her only son, which would have been her only means of providing for herself in any significant way she would basically just be on the streets in poverty after this. So the next story comes from Matthew 8 again, verses 14 through 15, the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. And I'm going to skip over it because we already covered it in Mark 1, 29 through 31. It's also in Luke 4, 38 through 39. And then we have the sick healed at evening. We covered that in Luke 4. On following Jesus brings us back to Matthew 8 again, verses 18 to 22. Now, when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave commandment to depart unto the other side. And a certain scribe came and said unto him, Master, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus saith unto him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And another of his disciples said unto him, Lord, 
Suffer me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said unto him, Follow me, and let the dead bury their dead. That's a really provocative thing to say. Seems insensitive. (laughs) What do you make of that, Ben? I remember asking questions about this as a teenager, you know, studying it or as a missionary studying this. This is like some other statements Jesus has that, that do seem insensitive, right? There's other places in the Gospels where we see Jesus have a lot of emotion. In Matthew, there's less of that going on, less emotion showed. And this could be just more of like a, a, a rhetorical type of teaching. He's not like talking to the man himself, like, oh, no, no, your father's dead, so forget about it and follow me. And the people that are worried about that, they're already dead inside. So, <laughs> I mean, it just seems really, really callous. This is more about what it means to follow Jesus, what it is that you're giving up, and the social importance assigned to burying one's family when they die, particularly their father, right? It was a huge social responsibility. And what Jesus is saying here is that you have to be willing to let go of all of these other things that seem to be pulling at you socially if you're going to follow me. You know, I'm I'm upsetting these types of norms. But again, I it, this seems more rhetorical than like literal telling him, no, don't bury your father type of thing to me. You know, there's so many possible readings. One I read about is the resurrection happens. The righteous are resurrected. Who's left behind? People who have no life and the dead can bury each other at that point. Right? This is one reading. One of the other things here, Christopher, so before that, we have that question from the person that says, oh, I want to follow you wherever he goes. And Jesus says, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So to me, this is kind of just telling the person, hey, if you're following me, you're going to be homeless like I am. So are you ready for that? You know, <laughs> We don't get an answer from the guy, but it does remind me of the other story we haven't gotten to yet of the rich man that comes to Jesus and says, hey, you know, what What lack I yet? And he says, well, sell all your stuff and follow me. And he went away sorrowing. Like, it's kind of the same concept here. You know, hey, I want to follow you. And Jesus is saying, you have to be willing to give up everything when you follow me. Are you ready to do that? I'm homeless. So that's kind of where the next story comes from as well. Like, I, I want to follow you, but I have to bury my father. You have to be willing to give up everything, even the most socially important things to you. Are you ready for that? And if the people aren't ready, you know, then they're not ready. Now you've contextualized it. It makes a lot more sense. Yeah. So the stilling of the storm is the next story. This is in Mark 4, 35 through 41. And also in this week's reading, Matthew 8, 23 through 27. I'm going to favor the earlier gospel of Mark and read from it. And the same day when the even was come, he saith unto them, let us pass over and unto the other side. And when they had sent away the multitude, they took him, even as he was in the ship. And there were also with him other little ships. And there arose a great storm of wind, and the waves beat into the ship, so that it was now full. And he was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow. And they awake him and say unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? And he arose and rebuked the wind, and said unto the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. And he said unto them, Why are ye so fearful? How is it that ye have no faith? 
And they feared exceedingly and said unto one another, What manner of man is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? There are some clear allusions here to Job and Jonah. Yeah, obviously the storm coming and him being asleep in the ship, right? That's basically exactly the story of Jonah there. I'm not sure what is the intended rhetorical link here. Like, what are they saying about Jesus? Because in the story of Jonah, right, Jonah's the quote-unquote sinner that needs to be thrown overboard, but that's not who Jesus is. Like, why does there seem to be some sort of link between the stories here? What is being said? What do you think, Christopher? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know either. I think this is something worth thinking about. I was thinking about it and I couldn't come up with anything. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what the the link is. It it does seem there's a clear link, like there's too many similarities in the way the story is told. So there's something going on there, but I I can't quite crack it. Now, if you, the listener, know the answer, let (laughs) us know. Reach out to us. Let us know on Facebook, YouTube, your favorite podcast app. Send us an email. Let us know. I did just have a thought come to me, though, Christopher, about this story. Okay, so I'm going to throw this out there. See, the idea here is that Jesus is in control of the elements, even the sea. Oh, yeah. So remember in the story of Jonah that the sea is primordial. No one has control over this. It's pure chaos. Only God does, because then God prepares the fish that saves Jonah. And so for Jesus to be able to go up there and calm the elements— like he did. To me, it seems like this is a clear statement of his divinity in the story. That's obvious, yeah. He's saying, God has control over this. Well, Jesus does. Well, what manner of man is this? That he has right. control over the sea, this this ocean of chaos, literally, right? And so that does seem to fit a lot better with what we get from the story of Jonah and how that ties into what Jesus is doing here. Well, this is the part I need you to explain to me, Ben, because I understand what it's saying about Jesus, but what's it got to do with the Jonah story? Well, remember that Jonah is going down, down, down in the story, and what he's going down into is more and more chaos, out and out and out of creation. And the only thing that can save him out of that depth of chaos is God. When they're in the middle of this storm and this chaos, what's the only thing that can save them? Jesus. And so that's why I'm saying I think I think sort of the whole rhetorical point of the story and pointing it to Jonah is pointing at Jesus's divinity. I see. That part was obvious to me. I, I just wondered why Jesus is the one sleeping, and that compares him to Jonah. And that's where we had a question. The sleeping part is a little odd, but maybe the point of the sleeping part is to say, hey, tie this to the story of Jonah, right? And then you'll see the deeper symbolism. And the way you do that is by bringing in multiple elements from the story so that it's unmistakable that you are relating it to that story. Our next story is from Matthew 8, 28-34. It's on the Gadarean demoniacs. And when he was come to the other side into the country of the Gergesenes, there met him two possessed with devils, coming out of the tombs, exceeding fierce, so that no man might pass by that way. And behold, they cried out, saying, What have we to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God? Art thou come hither to torment us before the time? And there was a good way off from them, and heard of many swine feeding. So the devils besought him, saying, If thou cast us out, suffer us to go away into the herd of swine. And he said unto them, Go. And when they were come out, they went into the herd of swine. And behold, the whole herd of swine ran violently down a steep place into the sea, 
and perished in the waters. And they that kept them fled and went their ways into the city and told everything and what was befallen to the possessed of the devils. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they besought him that he would depart out of their coast. That's interesting. Get out of here. <laughs> we don't want your type around. Casting out devils. That's really interesting. Well, let's come back to that. I've been there, Ben. This is in ancient Gadara's Un place today in Jordan. Have you been there? Yes, I have been here. This is where I saw the Sea of Galilee from. Like you go okay. up there and, and you can see there are steep hills and what you might call cliffs at some point. I don't know about cliffs. And the text doesn't say cliff. I feel good about that because I remembered it as a cliff. And I thought to myself, well, I've been there and there is no cliff. And a cliff usually happens near the sea. As you've pointed out, one can see the sea, but it's about six miles away. So the story sort of doesn't add up in that sense, right? But it does make sense rhetorically because of the ancient association, which I think survives to this day for some, maybe even in the Latter-day Saint tradition, of the association between water and demons. I mean, it's the same thing. You said chaos, right? I mean, that's another way to put it. The serpent is another symbol of chaos in the garden. You have waters. So yeah, there is that association. And so it makes sense that they would end up in the waters, even though they're six miles away. You also have them going into the swine, the unclean animals, right? And so if there's a swine herd, then, you know, this is by implication a non-Israelite or, you know, non-Jewish person that he's associating with. That's a good point, yeah. Our next story is about the dumb demoniac, which is only really verse 22 of chapter 3 in Mark, right? This story is further fleshed out in Matthew in a chapter we haven't covered yet and, and aren't covering this week. Yeah, you say the dumb demoniac. In in Mark, it doesn't mention anything about that, but in Matthew, it does. And so that's why we're saying that this part of Mark is related to the story in Matthew chapter 9 that talks about a dumb man possessed with a devil. But the part we're going to talk about in Mark today is just the part where the scribes accuse him of casting out devils by the prince of devils. And in the King James Version, it has this translated as Beelzebub, which is actually kind of a polemical term because the actual word isn't Beelzebub, it's Beelzebul, which is sort of Baal or Baal. Remember from the Old Testament, Baal, this God, it just means Lord, but it's this foreign God that gets put up in opposition to the God of Israel. Then within Jesus's time, this becomes conflated with the prince of devils, who then becomes conflated with Satan. And so it kind of all gets sort of put into a single person, this personage of Satan as this single sort of antithesis of God, right? And this is how this sort of evolves over time. But the actual word, again, isn't Beelzebub, it's Beelzebul. The reason why it's a polemical translation is because the word Beelzebub means Lord of the flies or Lord of the dung heap, right? Where the flies are. But Beelzebul is just Lord of the house. And so when they translate it, they kind of like, said Beelzebub to make fun of this god. It's almost a pun type of thing. I know you are, but right? what am I? Yeah. 
Just as many of the polytheistic deities largely compounded into a single deity, this also happens with the demons. So by Jesus's time, as I was saying, these are largely compounded into the figure of Satan or the devil. Thank you for explaining that, Ben. For the listener, if you need to hear that again, there's a button in your app that lets you go back <laughs> 30 seconds. Just hit that a few times and then do it over and over again. I think I got it though, Ben. That That's good polemics right there. And it, our next story, skipping a few stories, is John the Baptist's question and Jesus's answer according to Luke 7, 18 through 23. It will also show up in Matthew 11, 2 through 6. We're reading from Luke chapter 7, verses 18 through 23. And the disciples of John showed him of all these things. And John called unto him, two of his disciples sent unto Jesus, saying, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? When the men were come unto him, they said, John Baptist has sent us unto thee, saying, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? And in that same hour he cured many of their infirmities and plagues and of all evil spirits, and unto many that were blind he gave sight. Then Jesus answering said unto them, Go your way, and tell John what things ye have seen and heard, how that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, to the poor the gospel is preached. And blessed is he, whosoever shall not be offended in me. The things that Jesus tells the disciples to tell to John are, this is a quote from Isaiah, or maybe it would be better to say these things come from Isaiah. I don't know that they're all in one place in Isaiah, but they do come from Isaiah. Yeah, if we look at Isaiah chapter 61, there's a lot of this within that chapter. This is the chapter that it was understood generally to be specifically about the Messiah. And this is the chapter, or at least the beginning verses that Jesus gets up in the synagogue in Nazareth and reads, right? And then says, this is fulfilled in your ears. And they all get upset with him, right? This is what he's referring to when he says, yeah, go and tell John that this is what's happening. In other words, I'm the Messiah is kind of what he's saying. Yeah. It's interesting to have John come back into the picture too, isn't it? Yeah. What do you make of that, Ben? Well, again, a lot of these gospel writers are trying to encompass or, or bring in the disciples of John under the umbrella of Jesus and they don't want to alienate them, but at the same time, they want to elevate Jesus to say, no, Jesus is actually who you should be following. But John was a good guy, right? We have all these statements from Jesus. Oh, yeah, he's the greatest of prophets, right? All these praises, but you still have to follow Jesus. You need to move on from John to Jesus. And then we have these statements from John, right? I need to decrease. He must increase. So all of these kinds of statements, bringing John back into the story, are ways of... I don't want this to sound like I'm skeptical or anything of it, like this is just what happened. The disciples are being funneled into Jesus's disciples and moving away from John, so to speak. Right, which we saw also in the text that the same kind of things were being said about Jesus, that no, 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 he's not a follower of John. And so now, not only is he not a follower of John, and not only are John's disciples leaving him uh, to follow Jesus, and John's following Jesus, right? And Jesus is the Messiah, according to what he's saying to tell John about him that matches up with the description of the Messiah in Isaiah. Makes sense. Continuing in chapter 7, our next story is about Jesus' witness concerning John. So this is seven twenty-four to 35 And when the messengers of John were departed, he began to speak unto the people concerning John, What went ye out into the wilderness for to see? A reed shaken with the wind? But what went ye out for to see? 
a man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, they which are gorgeously apparelled and live delicately are in the king's courts. But what ye went out for to see? Prophet? Yea, I say unto you, and much more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare the way before thee. For I say unto you, among those that are born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. But he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And all the people that heard him and the publicans justified God being baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves, being not baptized of him. And the Lord said, Whereunto then shall I liken the men of this generation? And lo, what are they like? They are like unto children, sitting in the marketplace, and calling one to another, and saying, We have piped unto you, and ye have not danced. We have mourned to you, and ye have not wept. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and ye say he hath a devil. The Son of Man is come, eating and drinking, and ye say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. The wisdom is justified of all her children. Wisdom is justified of all her children? This stood out to me because this is a New Testament personification of wisdom as the divine feminine that we saw multiple times in the Old Testament. And this is Jesus doing it. And so that kind of stands out to me here as wisdom literature, and then it has this hint of that sort of divine feminine there. I'm so glad you picked up on that. I hadn't noticed it. But wisdom is justified of all her children. Yes. Next, we come to the story of the woman with the ointment from verses 36 through 50 of the same chapter, chapter 7 of Luke. And one of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment, and stood at his feet behind him weeping, and began to wash his feet with tears, and did wipe them with the hairs of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee, which had bidden him, saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man... If he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And he saith, Master, say on. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed five hundred pence and the other fifty. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And he said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. And he turned to the woman and said unto Simon, Seest thou this woman? I entered into thine house. Thou gavest me no water for my feet, but she hath washed my feet with tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman since the time I came in hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loveth much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. And he said unto her, Thy sins are forgiven. And they that sat at meat with him began to say within themselves, Who is this that forgiveth sins also? And he said to the woman, Thy faith hath saved thee. 
go in peace. This is an interesting story, Ben. There's a lot going on here. There is. And and some of it's it's a little risque, even, if you understand the position in which these people find themselves and some of the terms that are being used in this text, right, that have double entendre. I'm a little bit uncomfortable even talking about it. This is supposed to be a PG podcast. <laughs> well, some of what is going on here needs to be contextualized in the culture of sitting at dinner and eating, right? So it's not likely that they had chairs that they sat upright in like we do. Typically, they would be lounging on like a cushion or something like that, and their feet would be to the side or behind them even. And so it's very possible for someone to come in from the outside because a lot of times, you know, the entrances were just open and someone would come in and be on the outside of the social gathering, still on the outside, but have access to his feet. So that's how that could happen there. I've seen this depicted, you know, in in different like videos that people will make about Jesus and stuff. And the part that reading through it this time stood out to me was that it seems that this woman, when she comes to Jesus, already knows that her sins are forgiven. And Jesus' statement of her sins being forgiven is actually to the man, to Simon. He's telling him that her sins are forgiven. And so her actions are actually evidence of the effect of her forgiveness, like the fruits right? They are the effect, not the cause. It's not her coming up and anointing his feet, you know, washing and anointing his feet, and then him saying, okay, because you did this, your sins are forgiven. It's the other way around. She was forgiven, and then she's showing love because of that. What makes you say that, Ben? Verse 47, Christopher says in my NRSV, therefore, I tell you, her sins, which were many, have been forgiven. This is a past tense, whereas in the KJV, it says her sins, which are many, are forgiven. And so in the NRSV, it shows it as a past tense, like this has already happened. Whereas in the KJV, it's saying this is happening right now, like I'm forgiving you of your sins. But the next statement is, hence, she has shown great love. At least in the NRSV, the statement is something saying her sins were forgiven. There were many. That is why you're seeing her show great love. I see. And I think that's a different kind of statement than what we get from the translation in the KJV. And I'm curious, in that case, what Rudin has to say on these verses. Luke 7.47 in Rudin's translation reads, So I tell you, she's absolved from her offenses, as many as they are, which is why she's shown great love. But whoever's absolved from just a little loves only a little. Whereas in the King James Version we read, 47 again, Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. I kind of take from the KJV translation here that her love then caused the forgiveness or precipitated the forgiveness. And I get from the NRSV and from Rudin that it's the other way around. The forgiveness precipitated her love. There's a theological difference there. Oh, yeah. You know, at least a soteriological difference there. Well, it may even be the the very theological difference between Latter-day Saints and 
Protestants, right? Isn't it the whole works versus faith or grace? There could be part of that discussion there. You know, so one thing is, it's not necessarily the case that this theological difference is behind the King James scholars' translation itself, right? It could just be the manuscripts. Remember that the manuscripts that were used to make the King James Version were not the best manuscripts. And so we have better manuscripts today than they had then. When Erasmus was compiling the Greek manuscripts for translation, and he couldn't find some of them in Greek, he just back-translated from the Vulgate, from the Latin translation into Greek. That's always been an issue with the King James Version. But there are also, I think it's a good reminder at this point, that there are also baked into your translation, and if not into your translation, then into your reading. One or the other or both are going to have theological assumptions baked in. And so just checking those, you'll hear me hopefully doing this, right, as I talk about these verses and what and, and these texts and what they say, that I'm just trying to look at them at face value and question them, to read critically, if you will. I think I'm going to also mention that it may not be necessary that it's either or way to look at this, because when we're talking about a person's perception of reality, state of being, like they're in a place of repentance, it doesn't require that it's it's either or, right? Like right. their actual being is tied up within the concept of love and repentance and forgiveness. And so it's both. It's both the love that causes and is the effect yes. of the thing. Yes, you know, to, to have it have to be one or the other is just dualistic. Yeah. And so probably not realistic, right? But it's neat to see the the translation and see how you can view it either way and then realize, hey, actually, it could be both. Our next story is Jesus is thought to be beside himself, Mark 3, 20 through 21. And the multitude cometh together again, so that they could not so much as eat bread. And when his friends heard of it, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said, he is beside himself. And that's that. We go on to the parable of the sower, Mark 4, 1 through 9. And he began again to teach by the seaside. And there was gathered unto him a great multitude, so that he entered into a ship and sat in the sea. And the whole multitude was by the sea on the land. And he taught them many things by parables, and said unto them in his doctrine, Hearken, behold, there went out a sower to sow. And it came to pass, as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and the fowls of the air came and devoured it up. And some fell on stony ground, where it had not much earth, and immediately it sprang up, because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no fruit. And other fell on good ground, and did yield fruit that sprang up and increased and brought forth some thirty, and some sixty, and some an hundred. And he said unto them, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. And that's how Jesus taught in parables, right? Next, we need him to go with us as disciples, or we need a master to be a disciple to, to tell us what this means, right? <laughs> so why does Jesus teach in parables? Well, the next part tells us the reason for speaking in parables. This is from Mark 4, 10 through 12 and Mark 4, 25. And when he was alone, they that were about him with the 12 asked of him the parable. And he said unto them, unto you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, 
but unto them that are without? All these things are done in parables, that seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest at any time they should be converted and their sin should be forgiven them. Jesus, he's going to tell his disciples in secret, right? The mystery, that which cannot be spoken or which should not be spoken, right? He's going to speak only to them. Mystery meaning, again, to close the mouth, right? So these are esoteric teachings. They're not for the masses. We see him, again, separating. He goes to the masses and teaches. He separates with his disciples and teaches them in private. And why does he do this? Well, we get again in verse 12 this idea of seeing but not perceiving and hearing and not understanding. There's probably more going on, but the idea seems to be that you teach someone a story that they can remember, and they're going to understand it when they first hear it at a certain level. But they'll remember the story, and then later, as their understanding grows, they'll come back to the story and they'll learn something more, maybe deeper, maybe that applies more to that point of their life. And that will continue on and on so that they see, but they don't see everything that they can learn from it all at once. Sort of a timed release type of thing. <laughs> yeah. Next, we have the interpretation of the parable of the sower. This is from Mark four thirteen through 20. And he said unto them, Know ye not this parable? And how then will ye know all parables? The sower soweth the word. Now, this word is translating logos again. I thought that was interesting. We last saw logos in John, and, and logos was equated. The logos was equated with Jesus himself, and now Jesus is speaking of the logos. I'll read again. And he said unto them, Know ye not this parable? And how then will ye know all the parables? The sower soweth the word, the logos. And these are they by the wayside, where the word is sown. But when they have heard, Satan cometh immediately and taketh away the word that was sown in their hearts. And these are they likewise which are sown on stony ground, who when they have heard the word, immediately receive it with gladness. And they have no root in themselves, and so endure but for a time afterward, when affliction or persecution ariseth for the word's sake, immediately they are offended. And these are they which are sown among thorns, such as hear the word, and the cares of this world, and the deceitfulness of the riches, and the lusts of other things entering in, choke the word, and it becometh unfruitful. And these are they which are sown on good ground, such as hear the word, and receive it, and bring forth fruit, some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some an hundred. And so there's, there's an explanation of the parable, which means, well, it's not secret anymore, right? It's been shared with us. It's in the text. It's published widely. It's been translated into so many different, not even just languages, but English translations, right? So again, there are teachings that Jesus is sharing with his disciples privately, and that's mentioned in some of the verses. And then there's this, right? Maybe an example of that that's actually been shared with us. And to me, the most interesting thing about it, reading it through at this time, is noticing that the word that we're dealing with is the Logos. So Christopher, here in Mark, the concept of the Logos, obviously this isn't as developed as we see it within John, but what does it mean to Mark at this time? What does it mean to the Christian community at this time? That's a really good question. So Mark's writing, again, around 50, right? 
Yeah, probably something like 50 years before John. Yeah. And so, again, in John, we see Jesus equated with the Logos. Here we see Jesus speaking of the Logos as if it were the Word, right? That, well, it's the Word in, in John too, right? John 1, but that Word is meant to be God himself, right? Or Jesus as Son of God in John's theology. I think, you know, without actually answering your question, Ben, and I'd, I'd love to hear if you have an answer. Yeah. <laughs> my answer would be, is it an interesting to note that there are two distinct theologies here, and each of the gospel authors has their own theology? Right. Yeah. These aren't necessarily a crossover in terms of their intention and meaning of the same terms. Right. Just because they use logos doesn't mean they mean the same thing by it. Here, Jesus is using this word to talk about his teachings in particular, and John is using it to denote the person of Jesus himself. Remember, first he makes a metaphor and then he pushes the metaphor into, yes, you know, into Jesus as a person, right? So it's still this abstract concept. And in either one, I think we can say in both Mark and John, we are dealing with a Greek equivalent of Hadavah, right? The word from the Hebrew Bible, right? Yeah. And yet, and yet, we're in a Hellenized world here. And so, again, this concept of Logos is going to be this rational principle that organizes all things. I think in this story, we could easily read it as the word means, again, as you said, Jesus's words, right? The gospel, right? The good news. Yeah. I think you could read it that way. And yet, we're dealing with the Logos, right? So a Logos, especially in this context, whether it's Mark or John, we're in this Hellenized context where that has a meaning for those you know interested in Stoicism or already having learned about Stoicism. This is the predominant philosophy in this context, right? And the Stoic Logos is the principle that organizes the cosmos. It is what's behind the order, the created order. So now we have another parable, the seed growing secretly, the parable of the seed growing secretly, Mark 4, 26 through 29. And he said, so is the kingdom of God, as if a man should cast seed into the ground and should sleep and rise night and day and the seed should spring and grow up, he knoweth not how. For the earth bringeth forth fruit of herself, first the blade, then the ear, after that the full corn in the ear. But when the fruit is brought forth, immediately he putteth in the sickle, because the harvest is come. The only thing that comes to mind when I read these verses is the hymn. We have the this hymn, you know, first the blade, and then the ear, then the full corn shall appear. That, that's the only thing that comes to mind. I didn't know that. Mind. Oh, I didn't we know that one. That goes okay. that. Yeah. Yeah. That would be one of those many hymns I don't know. It's one of the hymns we sing at Thanksgiving time, because it's like about being thankful for the harvest. Okay. The next parable is the parable of the mustard seed, Mark 4, 30-32. And he said, Whereunto shall we liken the kingdom of God, or with what comparison shall we compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when it is sown in the earth is less than all the seeds that be in the earth, which isn't actually true. It's not the smallest seed, but it's pretty small. But when it is sown, it groweth up and becometh greater than all herbs, and shooteth out great branches, so that the fowls of the air may lodge under the shadow of it. Which implies protection, right? That it gives protection. Yeah, Richard Rohr has some commentary on these verses about the mustard seed in his book, 
Jesus' alternative plan. And they were kind of counterintuitive when I was listening to it. So I'll just kind of briefly mention here that the mustard was actually considered a weed, was growing in places and, and taking over things that a farmer typically wouldn't want. And then if birds come and they lodge in the branches of the mustard seed, well, birds aren't seen favorably by farmers because they're going to go and eat the seeds out of the ground and and cause problems, right? That's why we have scarecrows so forth. So this is actually sort of like a subversive parable going on here, talking about how the kingdom is going to sort of disrupt the order of things and how they're going to go. Now we have another explanation of Jesus's use of parables from Mark 4, 33-34. And with many such parables spake he the word unto them, as they were able to hear it. But without a parable spake he not unto them. And when they were alone, he expounded all things to his disciples. Again, I don't think we can assume that all things is covered by that one explanation we got. Well, that's it for this week, Ben. It occurs to me, Christopher, that in going through it the way that we are, you know, it may sometimes be difficult to sort of follow it, but this is an easier way to sort of, as you were saying at the beginning, follow some sort of chronology in the commentary, trying to create some sort of a first this, then that type of thing. I agree. Yeah. Now, of course, it would be even better to compare each pericope side by side. And that's what this document does. We're not doing that on the podcast because we are covering what is assigned reading each week in the church's curriculum. But again, from the same document we're reading from, you can read all of the same story in each of the gospels where it's told in, in more than one gospel side by side. And I think that's really helpful. I think it's probably the best way to study. I wish we could do you know, a podcast that way but that wouldn't be following the curriculum. And so it wouldn't give you, the listener, what you need each week, right? And so that's we're trying to do the best we can here. Let us know what you think. Give us some feedback. And by the way, thank you to all of you who have reached out and given us so much positive feedback. We really appreciate it. We also are interested in constructive criticism too, so please don't hesitate to share. Thank you to our volunteers for editing, for social media, everything that goes on behind the scenes and to those who donate to help cover the cost of the podcast. Thank you. Yes. Thank you from me as well. And thank you, Ben, for being with me. Thank you, Christopher.